When we were last together, we started 1 Samuel 18, so you can be turning there, as that's the chapter we hope to finish today. And if you remember then, I said Jesus is either loved or hated. David, in this chapter, is loved or hated. In fact, 1 Samuel 18 opens with Jonathan declaring his love for David, and it closes with Michael, Jonathan's sister, Saul's daughter, loving David. And the middle of the chapter states that all Israel and Judah loved David. So David is loved. But then, contrasting with this love is a very violent hatred from King Saul himself. Jealousy and hatred. Another theme that we uh, really see today is a repetitious phrase or a concept that the Lord was with David. God with us. It's It's a theme throughout the Bible. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. And when sin severed that reality, God with us, the whole Bible leans into that reunion. It's why we read about God with the nation of Israel, God speaking to us through the prophets, and here, God with the anointed, uh, the anticipated King David. In fact, that word Messiah just means anointed one. Jesus is named Emmanuel, God with us. And, And this love and hatred with the very presence of God, I talked about few weeks ago, how immovable God is and, and how, so because of his immovability, how seething and loathsome the hatred is, but then also how endearing and championing and, and passionate those who love God are. This is because God didn't just come to make eh, friends, which is who we are. It's a great title. It's taken straight from Scripture. I no longer call you servants, but friends. But also the Bible calls us the bride, which that kind of ups the ante a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, it's a biblical symbol. Jesus could have said in John 15, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends, but not just friends, Lovers, but that would have made the chapter, I guess, a little bit longer. And it would have made, especially us men, squirm a little bit in, in that context. But it's true. The Bible says the church is the bride. And so when we see David receiving a bride in this chapter, I can't help but see King David taking his bride and wondering, what does this tell us about the greater King David taking his bride? So, um, I'm not going to ask you to stand, or I don't know, if you want to stand, go ahead and stand. (laughs) Um, But we're going to take some time to read verses 10 through 30 in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So, stand, sit, whatever you feel comfortable doing. I just made it awkward because some of you are going to stand, some of you are going to sit, I'm sure. Anyways, 1 Samuel 18 verses 10 through 30. We read, the next day an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul and he began to rave inside the palace. David was playing the lyre as usual, but Saul was holding a spear and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. Therefore, Saul sent David away from him and made him commander over a thousand men. David led the troops and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Saul told David, Here is my oldest daughter Mirab. I'll give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. 
Then David responded, Who am I, and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? When it was time to give Saul's daughter Mirab to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, as a wife. Now, Saul's daughter Michael loved David. And when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, You can now be my son-in-law. Saul then ordered his servants, Speak to David in private, and tell him, Look, the king is pleased with you, and all his servants love you. Therefore you should become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor commoner. The servants reported back to Saul, These are the words David spoke. Then Saul replied, Say this to David, The king desires no other bride price except a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines. When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Before the wedding day arrived, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as a full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. Then Saul gave his daughter Michael to David as his wife. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a weighty thing. Never let it pass over our ears or never let us read it fleetingly, quickly, thinking that we need to find better parts of your scripture to speak to us whenever your entire word is inspired, given by God, and given to us for the growing of our faith. So as we read and study and unpack these words, we, we pray for the daily bread that you might give us that we might nourish our bodies, nourish our souls with your truth. May it grow our hearts to know, love, and serve you more. Father, many of us selfishly come to your word looking to just be talked to about one thing that might interest us. But, Father, just like a real person, sometimes you desire to communicate to us what you have to say. And since you are our creator and our God, you know what's best to say to us. You know the words we need to hear. And so that's the words we long to hear today. Please move me out of the way. Say what it is that you desire. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If any of you are standing, please be seated. Excuse me. <clears throat> out of the gate... We have some explaining to do in this text, don't we? If you remember whenever I first started reading, we, we read in verse 10, The next day an evil spirit sent from God came powerfully on Saul. And we actually had a similar verse to deal with back in April as we were looking over chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Uh, this was before the David versus Goliath episode. And it explained to us that David came into Saul's service as a musician because an evil spirit from God tormented Saul. Now, we see wording like this, an evil spirit sent from God, and we wonder sometimes, how to square that away with what we know of God elsewhere in the scriptures. Few passages, Psalm chapter 5 verse 4 tells us, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you. Or how about James 1.13? No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, 
and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. Or how about 1 John 1, 5? God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, the point I made back in 1 Samuel 16 was actually this. And it's a bigger point, excuse me, the bigger point about the spirit from God tormenting Saul is Saul. That's the bigger point. See, the passage in James actually speaks to this, that God not tempting anyone, James would continue on in that passage. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. I'm not defending or excusing God as if there's any necessity to prove God's innocence before anyone. When I say Saul is to blame for his predicament. Saul asked for an evil spirit from God by his own lifestyle of disobedience and ignoring God. Here's what's happening. It's the same thing that happens when Paul is speaking into a situation in 1 Corinthians 5. He, he says to a church there where a man is sleeping with his father's wife, 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. In fact, if you have a Bible, humor me. I'll never know if you don't. And turn there uh, just so you can see it for your own eyes. Not to say that I think you doubt me, but I want you to be in the habit of reading the Bible for yourself. 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. Now, again, the context is that Paul is speaking to a man sleeping with his father's wife. And he says, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, there comes a time in a sinner's life when they've personally and morally responsibly chosen sin over and over again to where the only gracious thing left to do is to let them eat their spiritual consequences. See, I believe in a God who who operates in this way. In order for our love and devotion to Him to be genuine and not coerced, He's going to let us make some decisions. To use the language of Paul in Romans 6.13, you can look that up later, we are to ask ourselves, am I going to offer my body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, or am I going to offer my body to God as weapons of righteousness? That's our decision. And we might look at people like Saul and in the story, and we might say, God, couldn't you have done something other than just let an evil spirit torment him? And if we ask that question, excuse me, <clears throat> we need to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9 and start the narrative with Saul from his first appearance in the book where God did anoint Saul. God did change his heart. God empowered Saul with his spirit. God gave Saul Samuel and godly guidance every step of the way. But it's been Saul always making shipwreck of the gifts that God has been giving him. So it's not in a vacuum that Saul is tormented by this spirit. Does that make sense? Saul's the one to blame for his predicament. God sending an evil spirit to Saul is just the consequences of Saul's actions. Well, I suppose we should move on. We have a lot more to cover, don't we? Verse 10, the next day, so I'm continuing again from verse 10, but we're going to be looking at the second part. The next day, an evil spirit sent from God, came powerfully on Saul, and he began to rave inside the palace. Now, some of you might have other translations in front of you. That word rave 
is actually the Hebrew word used often for prophesy. But because of its context here, namely, we're talking about a man possessed by an evil spirit, and we're going to see that he's going to pick up a spear and he's ready to kill David. The CSB translators and other Bible translations like the ESV use the term rave to demonstrate that King Saul was likely not walking around giving Holy Spirit-inspired sermons. He was likely raving like a madman that he is. David, verse 10, was playing the liar as usual. That's what David was there for, remember, as a musician for Saul to try and comfort him. Verse 10 continues, But Saul was holding a spear, verse 11, and he threw it, thinking, I'll pin David to the wall. But David got away from him twice. I like how the author recorded that little fact, right? Like, you mean David stuck around after the first time? This was a continual occurrence, was it? Like somebody walks in on my house. Hey, Kevin, what's that knife um, in the wall of the kitchen for? And I take it down. Oh, drat, I forgot to take it out of the wall after Christy tried to kill me again. Whoops. Like, everything's okay, move along. Few things. David in the palace knows that Saul has got an evil spirit in him. Uh, They know that they're dealing with a king who has problems. It's why David's here playing the liar in the first place. So maybe they're giving Saul grace. I get that. It's like it's easy to forgive and shrug off. Oh, that's just the demon throwing the spear. Like we're told Saul's madness and torment, though, is honing in on David because, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. Now, here's where the personal responsibility should come in again. And I know you are all perfect, but me, I'm just as guilty sometimes. Saul sees that the Lord is with David, and Saul knows that the Lord has left him. But what's the broader truth of that? that the author has already informed us uh, earlier in 1 Samuel, the Lord has rejected Saul's kingdom. The Lord has given Saul's kingdom to another. Saul knows these truths. He's been told point blank by Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, 13, and 14. And Saul is beginning to suspect that David is that other person. But here's where I I identify with Saul. Saul still persists stubbornly in ignoring God's word on the matter. And who can fault him? The first king of Israel and and an administration ending with me, the first king relinquishing the throne and admitting that I was a lousy king, one who disobeyed Yahweh? No, not in my book. I don't want to go down in history like that. And so Saul persists in ignoring God as if he's going to somehow prove him wrong on the matter. Excuse me. (coughs) Yeah. It's leading him to madness. You need to to hear this Christian, if you're willing to admit and get in on my boat of conviction. If you are persisting in sin, persisting in ignoring what God says about something in your life, whether you know it or not, see it or not, willing to admit it or not, it's leading you down a road of self-destruction. All who persist in sin like this, hopefully they're not as theatrical as Saul. Like, I hope you're not looking for spears and targets, uh, but your road, listen, your road is as self-destructive as Saul's. James in the New Testament in the passage that we've already read says it will ultimately lead to death. 
Did you hear the reasons of Saul's fear of David? His opposition to David? Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. That was verse 12 again. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. What a place to be in. Now, the cat's already out of the bag here. Not that any of us were still fooled that Saul was on Team Jesus, Team Yahweh. But when you're afraid of other people because of their godliness, because of God's presence. Now, for Saul, it was only further verification of what he already knew and is persisting in spite of that God was no longer with him because Saul should no longer be king. So that's probably the biggest factor in the fear of David that Saul has. Do you see reflections of the greater King David? I brought this up last time. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is the son of David, the greater King David, the Messiah, the king who has come in the throne of David. But then also I see in Saul in the kingdom kind of a foreshadow of the Jewish establishment in Jesus' time, who, just as King Saul hunts David down, so the Jewish establishment would hunt the greater King David, Jesus, down. We see this kind of weird hatred of Jesus in the Jewish establishment, don't we? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the greatest thing that could ever happen to Israel. But the cultural leaders of the day hate him. Every time Jesus shows himself to be the Messiah or do something good, heal people, feed on the Sabbath, give a good Bible lesson, whatever, there the establishment is there hating Jesus, loathing him. The Gospel of Matthew, when it recounts the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21, has Jesus coming in on the donkey and the crowds preparing a way for him, shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now. So they're crying for the Messiah, that the son of David, to save them now. Now, th- those could be fighting words for Romans who caught wind of that. It's actually what the Jewish powers who want to keep the peace and their power might be afraid of. Matthew then records, stating that it was the very same day that Jesus came to the temple and threw out the money changers, turned over the tables, yelled at them, saying, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Matthew twenty-one thirteen. Then Matthew tells us the same day, blind and lame people came to the temple and Jesus healed them. Then even children were echoing what was said as he came in earlier that day on the donkey. Hosanna to the son of David. And we read that by this point, verse 15 of Matthew 21 says, When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Think about that. When the cultural elites, leaders of Israel's establishment at the time, saw the wonders that he did, healing lame and blind men, when they saw that even children were excited about the Messiah, they were indignant. When you get upset at good things happening, you've crossed the line, right? It's the kind of bizarre response that Saul has to David. It makes sense because David is a threat to Saul's power. Jesus was a threat to the Israel elite power. But also, true leaders should desire the welfare of their people over their own. That's how Jesus says to lead. Lead by serving. We continue on back in 1 Samuel 18, picking it up in verse 13. Therefore, Saul sent David away from him 
and made him commander over a thousand men. Now, this could be another telling of what was happening at the beginning of 1 Samuel 18. It could be the, the first, I don't know, first eight, nine verses of chapter 18 might give us a summary and then chapter 18, the rest of it might flesh out that summary, filling in some details, because we kind of saw this same truth back in verse 5, if you have a Bible in front of you want to look at that. And it feels like a bit of a demotion, right? You go from king's personal musician and armor bearer, so 1 Samuel 16, 21 tells us, to now you're out on the battlefield leading stinky men and you're not even in the king's presence, like... But the plan backfires if Saul was seeking to lower David's reputation, right? Because the end of verse 13 says, David led the troops, 14, and continued to be successful in all his activities because the Lord was with him. When Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was leading their troops. Makes sense, right? Yeah, David deserves to be the military commander. He's the one who who stepped up to fight Goliath. Of course he'll be successful. He's taken down our biggest foe. He'll take down any foe. Verse 17. Saul told David, Here is my oldest daughter, Merab. I'll give her to you as a wife if you will be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, I don't need to raise a hand against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So I don't know what to think here. I mean, David slew the Philistines' biggest threat, Goliath. But apparently when you're mad with jealousy, that doesn't enter your mind when you hope the remainder of the less threatening army will be successful in in, in defeating the one man you fear because you know God is with him. Like, Furthermore, we also see how self-absorbed Saul is because the first thing on his mind concerning his daughters is not finding a good husband for them, but using them and hoping that the potential husband that they might have will be slaughtered as he attempts to win them from you. Yes, I've been using daughters plural because we see that this is just Saul's first attempt of two to have David killed as Saul prepares the marriages for his daughters. Verse 18. (coughs) Then David responded, Who am I and what is my family or my father's clan in Israel that I should become the king's son-in-law? So David is showing humility here, something that Saul probably can't understand. And I want you to hear this too, the way the author writes, Saul promised his daughter to David. I mean, this is as legal as it gets in marriages almost. She is pledged to be to David. Because verse 19, when it was time to give Saul's daughter Merib to David, because again, here it seems whatever arrangement that, that Saul and David made, he says, you know, slaughter Philistines, uh, maybe sure, maybe maybe in Saul's mind or maybe what was said was, you know, when this latest barrage of the Philistines threat is is over and done with, and, and David, if you're the one who caused that to happen, if the Philistine threat is no more because of you, that's what I'm going to give my daughter to you. And so I don't know what the specifics were, but apparently there came a time where Saul's daughter, Merib, could go to David per their agreement. However, David gave Saul a loophole. Remember, he was humble. Who am I that I should be your son-in-law? And so Saul did not fulfill his side of the bargain. She, Mirab, was given to Adriel, the Moholothite, as a wife. I want to take a, a step back and view these first several verses, 10 through 19, through the lens of the world dreading the anointed. Now again, if King Saul was the Jewish establishment, or or even if we just viewed King Saul 
as just the symbol of the world, the overarching system, what the Greek word cosmos and John, the overarching system that opposes God. <clears throat> the, the reality that it, the world, fears, not in the reverential way, but, but it dreads God and his anointed. The world dreads God because it knows that God is right, justified, and will be vindicated. King Saul knows his verdict. He's the rejected ruler. He's the one who, who failed out of disobedience. He's the one whom God has left. And, and instead of accepting his position and submitting under the mighty hand of God, he's operating out of disobedience. He's operating out of spite. And he's making no sense thinking that he can thwart God's ways. Saul ultimately dreads the anointed. Now, some people in the world would say, I don't even know God. And Paul would call them liars. Paul of the New Testament. He says in Romans 1, 18 through 22, that it is people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them. Because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. The, the point, people know God exists. People know it. Some people have been, like Saul, so persistent for so long and trying to tell themselves either A, there is no God, or B, what he says doesn't have to go. Some people hide under a barrage of doubts and skepticism, asking all the age-old questions, some like the ones we started with today. Who does God think he is sending an evil spirit to Saul? Answer, well, God. Meanwhile, here's David, slew Goliath, serving a king who tries to spear him, serves the king well when put in harm's way, wins the affections of all the common folk, Humble when promised the daughter. Humble when cheated against by his would-be father-in-law. I mean, what a gear-grinding man. Like, how dare he? He's so... How can he be so good in all that he is? But this is how the world, the cultural elites, treat Jesus. How dare you? You heal blind people. You heal lame people. You have the audacity to say things that are true. You hang out with sinners. You're more humble than all get out. You just grind my gears, Jesus. The world hates. The world dreads the anointed. Because in the presence of the anointed, there's no room for hypocrisy. That's the biggest agitating factor for the world, the Sauls, the Jewish cultural elites. There's no room for hypocrisy. And in the presence of of the anointed, those who hold on to power, however they can get it, realize that their power is nothing in comparison to the power that comes from knowing, loving, and being favored by God. And what's amazing, though, is that from this same world, the bride is chosen. I've used this before, so bear with me if you remember it, but it's always amazed me to understand that word world in the book of John because if the world hates you, says Jesus, know that it's hated me before it's hated you. And, and the world hates me, says Jesus, because I testify that its works are evil, says Jesus. But what else does Jesus say? For God loved the world 
in this way. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. See, that's, that's the Gospel, isn't it? The same world that hates Jesus, the same world that has evil works, is the very same world that Jesus comes and dies for. There's a lot of Saul's, a lot of Jewish establishment elites like Saul of the New Testament who seem to be at war with the anointed, with King David, the greater King David. And God's heart towards them is this, love. God's coming to earth to die for them. He's the king of the universe and he's their humble servant. That's Jesus. We read in the latter half of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel 18 that the bride is chosen from the world because King Saul has one more daughter and it's the daughter that happens to actually love David. So like Laban with Leah and Rachel for Jacob, here's the second daughter that David's going to have to do more daring work to purchase. Verse 20. Now, Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and when it was reported to Saul, it pleased him. Now, most normal dads who might be pleased to know that his daughter is loved by one of Israel's most popular bachelors would probably have wholesome good reasons to be pleased, but not Saul. Verse 21 says, I'll give her to him, Saul thought. She'll be a trap for him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So Saul said to David a second time, You can now be my son-in-law. She will be a trap for David. How so? Well, we'll see that in verse 25. But let's continue back here in verse 22. Saul then ordered his servants, Speak to David in private and tell him, Look, the king is pleased with you. Right? It's why so far he's tried to stab you twice with a spear and cheated you over with his first daughter. Oh, that's not in there. Continuing in verse 22, And all the king's servants love you. Therefore, you should become the king's son-in-law. You know, David could be saying, Well, interesting thing. I thought I was going to be the king's son-in-law. But then, actually, verse 23, Saul's servants reported these words directly to David, but he replied, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law? I am a poor commoner. The servants reported back to Saul. These are the words David spoke. We don't know if David is playing dumb or is naive or if he's just showing humility like Jesus did. Like, here's my other cheek, right? He's been a promised, he's been promised a daughter before and as we discussed it, it seems David did what was required. Verse 19 did say that there came a time when it was time to give that first daughter to David. But what's saddening is that David's continued voice of humility and deference to King Saul seems to always go unacknowledged. King Saul continues to hunt him down, and, and David is showing nothing but humility before him. Sure, I'll do everything you want me to do. Why do you want me to be your son-in-law? I'm not even worth that. And Saul's constantly thinking, he needs to die. He'll take my throne. He's my enemy. Verse 25, then Saul replied, Say this to David, the king desires... No other bride price, which David probably couldn't afford any money to buy a wife from the king. So Saul is saying money is not the price, but like the first time, warring is, uh, middle of verse 25, except a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. We'll talk about this in a minute, so gird your loins, excuse the pun. But, but the idea is this, in order to procure... Such an interesting bride price. These are no doubt going to have to be dead Philistines. And then we read, actually, Saul intended to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines. Big surprise here, too. I'm sure you didn't see that one coming. So what's the deal with Saul's bizarre request? I mean, it is bizarre. We know this, that that circumcision was the sign of the covenant with the Israelites. Throughout the book of Samuel, we've heard Jonathan and we've heard David call the Philistines in a derogatory fashion 
these uncircumcised men. It's a way of saying, these ungodly men, these people who are not chosen, not favored by God, they're outside of Israel. So what Saul could be saying is, after you kill these Philistines, make them right, as in a weird, morbid, teasing taunt. But I want to back out to the broader scope of the Bible. I was reminded of something that I preached actually years ago. I don't know if any of you remember it. It was the beginning of actually 2015 before the fire, and I had a, I had done a very quick series through um, the first chapters of Exodus, the first 14 chapters or so of Exodus. And there's this interesting episode in Exodus 4 that just seems to jump out of nowhere. Like there's like there's narration going, and then we have this like sudden break, stop, and we read this weird episode, Exodus 4, 24 through 26, says, On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. Now, if you go and read Exodus 4, the text is unclear if this hymn is either Moses or Moses and his wife's son. Uh, so we read on in verse 25, So Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he, God, let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. And then the narration seems to pick up where it left off mostly before. Very interesting side story. And I preached then that the language of marriage, a covenant, blood, which goes through the whole Bible, and then the covenant of circumcision maybe pointed us to this fact that maybe Zipporah, who was a Midianite and not an Israelite, hadn't up to this point accepted the faith of Moses. Well, we do know that their son hadn't been circumcised. And, um, but maybe this way, this was a way of Zipporah saying, I'm in, cover me by the blood, that sort of thing. Because anytime we see blood and circumcision together, we are reminded of God and his covenant with Israel. Isn't it interesting that for David to purchase the bride that actually loves him, it costs blood connected with covenant, circumcision covenant. So here's what I'm thinking. As far as Saul is concerned, his biggest concern was giving David a suicide mission. Like, I, I'm sure that after the Philistines start noting a pattern that some hotshot Israelite warrior is not only killing their men, but disfiguring them in such a bizarre way that that'll get the dog sent after David. He'll be dead in no time. But biblically speaking, taking into consideration all the scripture, the greater King David's price for his bride was bloody, costly, and covenantal as well. How did David fare? I know you're on the edge of your seat. First Samuel 28, 20, or excuse me, 18:26 says, "When the servants reported these terms to David, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. Pleased, right? Like he's thinking, "Wow, I don't have to pay an exorbitant amount of money. This sort of thing I can do." <clears throat> At the end of verse 26, before the wedding day arrived, verse 27, David and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. He brought their foreskins and presented them as a full payment to the king to become his son-in-law. So he outdid what was demanded. He doubled the order. And it also goes back to this too. David is desiring to please Saul more than anything. Humility, successful in everything Saul asks him to do, overachieving, which makes Saul's complete hatred of him all the more sad here last part of verse 27 going into 28 then Saul gave his daughter Michael to David as his wife Saul realized that the Lord was with David there's that phrase again you know it's almost as if Saul needs constant reminders the Lord is with David and the Lord's not with Saul David is to be king. Saul shouldn't be king. But this never causes Saul to repent 
only to harden and persist in his wrongdoing. But not only did Saul realize that the Lord was with David, but we also read at the end of verse 28, and that his daughter, Michael, loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. Every time the Philistine commanders came out to fight, David was more successful than all of Saul's officers. So his name became well known. See, it seems that it's, as a, it's, as a, it's of no use, no matter what Saul tries to do. This man, David, is going to rise to the top. And every time Saul tries to do away with him, he unwittingly plays part in helping him gain more of a reputation. Because not only had David slew Goliath, but have you heard? He slew 200 Philistines and he brought their foreskins to the king. (laughs) That beast, he's tough stuff. Reminds me of another anointed, another king, we're actually told in Acts chapter 4, the disciples are praying to God and they're actually quoting David here. Acts 4, beginning with verse 26, says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. See, the world, the King Saul's, the elites, they come together and they think, we're going to rid ourselves of him once and for all. He's going to die. He's going down. But what they meant for evil, what they meant to do to the greater King David, is what... God uses to cause the great King David to rise. Quite literally. He rises. And what all the elites say, we're killing him. The followers and admirers say, look, he overcame the grave. And just as King David purchased his bride through covenantal blood, so greater King David purchased his bride with covenantal blood. Now, some of you need to wake up. This is your part of the sermon. So you've heard about the world dreading the anointed. It just can't stand, you know, all of his goodness, all of his purity, all of his humility, his service, just his being right, true, and perfect. The world dreads the anointed. And we hear how even so from that world, the very daughter of King Saul, the very world that hates Jesus Because Jesus testifies its works are evil. The anointed purchases a bride from that world through blood. And you hear these two things. But now, since you and I are such selfless creatures capable of coming to the scriptures to just admire God, we ask, what does this have to do with me? Right? Kevin, you've told me about King David, King Jesus. You've told me the gospel again. Give me something that I need. You need this. You need this. I need this. Am I persisting in evil? Am I ignoring God's word? Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you. No, God, stop telling me that. No, God, that's not true. No, God, I got it all figured out. And before you know it, godliness starts becoming something that we dread. People that genuinely love and serve God become our bane. And hearing truth starts becoming deaf on our ears. And if this is you, and if the Holy Spirit has revealed this, the Holy Spirit has revealed the antidote today. The Holy Spirit has revealed the proverbial vaccine today. And that is this, that the very God who convicts you of worldliness comes to that same world and has purchased you by His blood. Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians do. And if you find yourself, like I have at times, more infatuated with your sin than what the gospel and with His kingdom, then here's what I prescribe. Here's what I dare you to do. 
start in the Passion Week and read the entire Passion of Jesus. That means start at the triumphal entry and then read to the end of a gospel account. So that's either Matthew 21, Mark 11, the middle of Luke 19, or John 12, 12. Those are all in your um, bulletin. And then read to the end of whatever book you're reading. Read all four. Read one of them or all of them in different translations, but read and see how the greater King David purchased the bride. And if you read, absorb, think, meditate over these things and see if the Lord does not soften your heart again and break you free from the madness that has King Saul, because you have to be cold or heartless to see the greater King David purchasing his bride and then say, what does this have to do with me? Everything. Let's pray. Father, some of us, perhaps in a small way, at least in a way that is close enough to cause us a little worry, a little fright, can identify with King Saul. That we can, we can stand in your presence and have nothing but dread and fear because we're so worried about what you're doing to our idols. We're so worried about how you convict us. We're so worried about what you've got to say about my life. Just get out of my life. But Father, you place the madness of King Saul along the goodness and the feats of King David because you want to show us something. You want to show us that the way to break free from worldliness in King Saul is to take great pleasure, enjoyment, and absorb and receive all that you do as the greater King David. Father, that you would love us so much to show up to our world and in the middle of our sin, die for us, purchase us by blood in such a weird way. That you would submit yourself, that you would deny your godliness, and that you would offer yourself up for the beating and the execution so that we might be restored and that we would understand that just as God is with David, so God is with his people. Because that's what your purchasing us does. So Father, if any of us are unmoved by this, I pray that we would take this challenge, that we would read the end of a gospel account, or read the end of all four gospel accounts, from your triumphal entry to the end of the book. And that you would use those moments of our obedience to stir in us a desire to love, serve, and follow you, to grow in our faith to be more like Jesus. Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.